It's a blessing to be with you guys this morning and be able to open up God's Word together and hear what He has to say to us. So if this is your first time seeing me, my name is Justin Kinsley. I'm the student pastor here at Faith Bible Church, and I've been here for about five years now. Second time preaching here on stage. I say that because uh, I want to tell you a story about uh, being a youth pastor. Um, so being a youth pastor is not for the faint of heart, I will say that. Uh, last time I preached, I, sh- I was shaving my head for about a month at that point because I'd been losing my hair for sixth grade, from sixth grade, so it was about time. Um, and so I decided to shave it all off, and uh, it had been about a month, and I got up here and I started preaching. I did my sermon, I did my lesson, and it was over, and I, I felt good about it. I thought it was good. And then a student came up to me, and the first thing he said was not, hey, great job. Um, I, you did a wonderful job, Justin. I loved your sermon, loved the service. It was more about uh, the glare that was beaming off of my head, apparently. So all you in the top row, I apologize if um, you need sunglasses. But uh, So, yeah, being a student pastor is so great for your self-confidence. Um, Anyway, I joke and I kid. I love being a youth pastor. I love my job and I love this church and it's a, it's a blessing and honor to be here with you guys. So before we begin today in the word, let's uh, bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Remove any hindrances in our lives from hearing from you today. We pray that we would find your word sufficient for all areas of our lives. Draw near to us, we pray. Amen. So there are certain stories in life that reverberate throughout history, coming up time and time again, always showing up in different frameworks and different uh, plot lines and different things like that. And you can particularly see this in the entertainment industry today. So on September 11th, 2001, I can remember sitting in my sixth grade teacher's social studies class, Ms. Cart. There was a small little 10-inch TV in the corner, and we were watching as the towers fell that morning. That event was the biggest act of terror that America had ever seen, and it would change the course of of history uh, in a lot of different ways. No longer could you do uh, what many people did in the past by going straight to your gate at the airport. That was no longer a thing you could do. Now you had to navigate endless lines of TSA agents and security checks. But also, our military became prime news, right, for uh, local and uh, national level to bring, as they sought to bring justice uh, to uh, those who had lost a loved one. But in the entertainment industry, the whole industry changed as a whole. After 9-11, terrorism became a primary conflict that we're seeing in movies and TV shows, and we still see that today. In a large part, this is because of the events of 9-11. Where time and time again, we see the similar imagery and ideas that are, are being popped up. In the Bible, there's also a story that reverberates throughout its narrative as well. So whether you are in the first few books of the Torah, or you find yourself at the climax of Revelation, the Exodus plays a vital role in understanding uh, God's plan for salvation. Timothy Keller, the, the preacher from uh, New York, emphasizes the importance of this event in this way when he says, the Exodus was the greatest redemptive act in the Old Testament. Just like the cross is the centerpiece for redemption in the New Testament, the Exodus was the centerpiece for the Old Testament. So if we know this, and if we want to understand the Bible, 
we've got to understand the imagery that it's using, which in many cases is Exodus imagery. So today my goal is to take a look at Exodus with you and look how God is using that as a plan for his ultimate salvation uh, through Jesus Christ. We see this in the New Testament in many different places, uh, but I want to focus in just for a second on Luke 9, 30-31, and I'll read this to you. This is the story of the transfiguration. Mark read this not too long ago. It says this, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So this word departure in the Greek is literally the word exodus. So what Moses and Elijah are doing at this point is they're speaking with Jesus about his greater exodus. So just as Moses had led the people of Israel through the waters, away from bondage and death, so too Jesus would soon pave the way for mankind to experience an even greater exodus, an even greater act of redemption. So today, as we walk through the story of the exodus together, I want you to look with me at how God uses this story in Exodus 14 to point forward to the salvation that we receive in Jesus. But before we actually read this story in Exodus, let's, let's get a little context. So in the preceding chapters to chapter 14, we see God has revealed himself through the ten plagues and the original Passover meal. And now Pharaoh has uh, called the Israelites to leave. He's told them to get out. So for over 400 years, Israel had been held captive by this foreign and oppressive nation. Demoralized and humiliated, Israel had come to find a sense of normality in their sunken position as slaves in Egypt. But God, through his mighty acts mediated through his servant Moses, gave rise to the largest migration of slaves that Egypt or any nation would ever see. Rejoicing and praising God, the people of Israel packed up what they could in their households and set out for the promised land. The promised land that was promised to their forefather Abraham many years ago. So out of bondage and into freedom, Israel marched under the leading of God until they found themselves at the edge of the Red Sea. So after this happens, Exodus 14, 5 through 9 describes Pharaoh beginning to realize the greatest mistake that he made by releasing these slaves. You see, the Israelites were a driving force in the economy and the prosperity of Egypt. Without his slaves in this forced labor, Egypt would be left humbled and in great need. So we read in verse 5, Pharaoh says, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So Egypt then gathers up uh, chariots and, and horsemen and, and military officers to go capture their slave labor. And it's at this point we're going to pick up in verse 10 of chapter 14 in Exodus. God's word says in verse 10, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. 
Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you fight, uh, who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who is going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in it. After them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and their horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. The news of the Egyptians' pursuit arrived to the Israelites as they cheerfully celebrated their newly granted freedom. But soon their, their glee would turn to gloom. To their east, lied this geographical boundary of the Red Sea, blocking any further travel. And to their west rode a storm of Egyptians looking to retrieve what they had just lost. It's at this point that Israel's gaze falls from God and focuses on the danger that is ahead of them. It's at this point where their praises turn into complaints, and their hope for a future is seemingly forfeited for a life back in chains. And as the panicked Israelites struggle to know where to turn next, Moses recounts the people's complaints. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is it not that we said that we would rather be in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve them? You see, every Israelite in the, in the Exodus event would have known nothing more for their entire life but slavery. From the moment of their birth until they were buried in death, slavery under the Egyptians would have been all that they would have known. 
So why in the world would these newly freed people, with a freedom that they had been looking for for so long, be so willing to dismiss all of the great things that God had done for them to secure their freedom? The moment things get difficult. Well, their bondage was comfortable. They knew nothing less than a life served on a, under the, uh, uh, the heavy hand of a harsh master. It was safe, and it was easy. So why walk into the promised land that was unknown to them when they could return to the security of the life as they knew it under bondage? So bondage is what they knew best. Bondage then became their safe escape from death. What's interesting about Israel's plight here is that often you and I can identify ourselves with the Israelites. Our bondage is comfortable. It's what we've known from the very beginning. There has not been a time where either you or I have not known what it's like to be enslaved to sin. Therefore, sin holds this almost irresistible power over us. It calls us back. It beckons us time and time again. No matter what we do to try to relieve this in ourselves, we always turn back. And we turn back to the chains that we often feel so comfortable in. Again, the Israelites at this, this time were legally free from their bondage. Pharaoh had told them to get out. You're no longer slaves. You're free. Get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you or your God any longer. But for some reason... When trouble came near, it was easier to go back to those chains to trust than to trust in the divine plan of God. Again, Timothy Keller uh, says it best. He says, in this story, it was one thing to get the Israelites out of slavery. It's a whole other thing to get the slavery out of the Israelites. Isn't that true for us? Often when Christ, uh, even though Christ has come to redeem us from our slavery to sin, we still feel this strong urge to sulk back into what we've always known. Yet just as the Israelites, our Passover lamb has come. Our Passover lamb has come to redeem us from our bondage. And to go back to what we knew in our slavery would be a blatant rejection of the sacrifice of God. We've been redeemed from the bondage of sin and been brought into new life. God has provided you and I with a way out. In fact, this word redeem, at the heart of it, is an understanding of loosing somebody from foreign oppression. Therefore, to redeem someone is to break them free from their bondage so that they can walk as they were intended to walk. And the work of Christ is just that, redemption. Sin has so shackled you and I that often we cannot see just how bound to it we are. Yet even amidst this, God has come to break those chains and to set us free from the master which seeks to destroy our life. You see, what the Israelites failed to see at this point is that they were already free. They were already secured from their bondage. Their position as slaves under the heavy hand of Pharaoh had been lifted. Now they were free to run after God. All they need to do now is trust that the God who saved them once in Egypt, we'll do it again. We too have been saved from our bondage. And no one so captivates this thought as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5.1. 
He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not run back to those old, comfortable chains to bondage. We've been set free from the power of sin. But it's important to note at this, at this time that this freedom was not from our own doing, but was a, a work of grace by God, which leads me to our second point. What we see is a second glimpse of the greater exodus coming by uh, God's gracious act on behalf of the people of Israel. In Exodus 14, 13 through 14, read some of the, my most favorite scriptures. Verse 13 and 14 says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Here we see God simultaneously reassuring the Israelites that he is going to protect them from this evil oppression that has uh, kept them down for so long. And yet this will be done by no effort of their own. All the Israelites need to do is stand still and see God working on their behalf. I mean, gospel truth finds itself right here. While we were still sinners, God came to achieve salvation on our behalf. God sent his very own son, fully God yet fully man, to enter into our world, to live with us and to die for us. And he did so not because we deserved it or because we entertained some sort of divine favor, but he did so independent of what we could ever do for him. God would save Israel from their bondage because of his deep love for them, and he saves us from death because of his great love for us. Again, these two verses are some of the most salvation-dense pieces of Scripture in all of the Bible. There's so much to unpack here. Verse 13 begins by instructing the people of God to stand still and see God work on behalf for their salvation. How hard that must have been to see this army coming closer and closer, yet God says, stand still. This is an invitation by Moses for the people of Israel to trust in the work of God on their behalf. Essential to our faith is trust in God, knowing full well that he's working for his people even if we can't discern his movements. So not only did Moses invite the people to trust and to stand still, but he also tells them what's gonna happen. God is going to get rid of the Egyptians for good. They're no longer gonna be a burden. So the people that had enslaved them for 430 years, treated them with contempt, downgraded their humanity, will no longer be masters over their lives. In fact, later on in Exodus 14, at the very end, we see that the Egyptian bodies are washing up on the shore. So while the Israelites here are complaining that they would rather be back in Egypt as slave, Moses assures them that their enemy has already been conquered. This victory was given to the people by sheer act of amazing grace. While the Egyptians may seem like a threat now, God has already ordained that they will be wiped from the face of the earth. Verse 14 then caps off this great section of Scripture by saying, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I mean, this should get us fired up right here. In this statement, we see that God is a God of grace. 
To defeat the Egyptians, the Israelites didn't need military strength. They didn't need chariots. All they needed was God on their side. He was their sword and shield. The God who created the world and all that is in it was more than enough to defeat the coming Egyptian army. They didn't have to do anything. Only stand still and trust and wait on the Lord because he promised to save them. He promised to act because he loves his people and would do anything to secure their salvation. So after uh, the people of Israel are told to watch what God is going to do, Moses is instructed then to raise up his staff above the waters that are before him and divide the sea. A monumental task by any human standard, uh, and, and it would just blow the mind of Moses, I imagine. And he did this so that the people of Israel might travel through the sea on dry ground to the other side. And so when the Egyptians then follow in pursuit, God is going to close the waters back and drown the entire Egyptian force. After this, the, the people of Egypt will surely know that the God of Israel, Israel is the, truly the one and only God. Again, the next part of the story is, is nothing short of amazing. In verse 19 and 20, God begins to do something great. If you remember, after the Passover meal, uh, the people of Israel were led out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud. And this same pillar of cloud was going to lead them through their wilderness journey. So currently, this pillar of, uh, of cloud was on their east side as they were uh, right by the uh, Red Sea. But now we read in verse 19 and 20 that this pillar of cloud is going to move behind them. And I want to read these verses again with you because it's very important that we get this. Verse 19 says, Then the angel of God, who was going before them, the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. God, at this point, is literally putting himself in between his people and their death. The imagery is amazing. God is putting himself between his people and their death. Israel's enemies are halted by the presence of God until God can make a way to redeem his people. So with uh, God actively preventing the Egyptians from reaching them, verse 21 begins to describe one of the greatest miracles of all time. It goes beyond comprehension. An entire body of water is separated into two, leaving nothing but dry ground for the Israelite people to walk on toward their freedom. And the, the Bible describes this scene as the waters being parted into two walls. This is crazy, right? Imagine yourself walking through a sea with water teeming with life on either side. You know, often we get so accustomed to hearing these stories that they become dull in our ears. The, the miraculous nature of what God is doing loses its effect in our lives. So think about it as, as somebody who is experiencing this for the first time. As Moses lifts his arm above the water with his staff and the, the waters begin to, to tremble and soon the sea is separated in two with a dry walkway in between. Imagine what they're thinking. How wonderful God must be. How powerful God must be. 
how loving God must be, how gracious God must be to literally reshape the world for their freedom. God is working for his people. God is taking Israel out of bondage and is bringing them to a land of freedom. He is providing them a way out. And just like Moses said in verse 13 and 14, God is working out the salvation of his people through his grace. People haven't done anything to merit this divine favor. God is still working. They have not proved themselves to be particularly faithful since just a second ago, they were complaining that they would rather be back in Egypt as slaves. Yet God is still providing freedom to Israel. The greatest news of all is that God's salvation work is not just limited to the nation of Israel. He has made a way for all of us to receive salvation. It was his coming to be with mankind. It was, it was his life that he lived for us. It was his death that he died for us. And it is his resurrection that he promises for us. Romans 8.30 says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And notice who Paul is saying is doing the work of salvation. It is God. It's only him, not us, not you, not me. Only God is working for our salvation. God has worked for us just like he's working for the people of Israel in Exodus. He's made a way out for them and he's making a way out for us. You know, in the Old Testament, the seas and the oceans are often pictured and illustrated uh, as this chaotic and violent force, this kind of unknown uh, uh, chaotic force. And many times, the, the authors use water to envision death. So it's particularly interesting that in this passage, uh, the, that God is parting the waters in two so that the people of Israel can literally go in between death to go to freedom in new life. God is figuratively parting death itself so that the people of God can find security and life in a new and better land. What a great picture of the gospel this is. Here we stand at the edge of death. Chaos and violence stir against us. Yet through the gracious work of God on our behalf, he is part of the waters of death so that we can walk into newness of life. It is by grace that we are saved. God has made a way through death and has given us a new life. What a great reminder for us as as we celebrated as a nation our independence yesterday. While there are many freedoms that we enjoy here in this country, that ultimately God has made a way to provide for us an even greater freedom, a freedom from sin, a freedom from death, a freedom that allows us to find true peace and joy in the presence of the Father, a freedom that was, uh, it was given to us through the mediating work of his son, Jesus. This freedom isn't limited to your geographical boundaries or what nation you're a citizen of, but is given to all who call out to the Lord in faith, trusting in the sacrifice of his son to atone for their sins. This leads me to my final point. In Exodus, we're not only getting a picture of our ultimate freedom from the bondage of sin through the gracious work of God, but we also see the means by which this work will be done for us namely through an even greater mediator than Moses. We have been spoken for. 
So until the book of Exodus, the people of God, according to the Abrahamic covenant, were simply just a large family. Um, but over 400 years passed since uh, Joseph and his brothers came to Egypt. Um, at their departure from Egypt, God's people were now rightly a nation. Their numbers had grown tremendously. And now there were many people who would be assumed under this promise of God. So to lead this new nation in his will, God raised up Moses as a mediator for all of Israel. It was his job to meet with God. It was his job to hear his words and then to convey them to the people and ultimately to guide them in the fulfillment of those words. So rightly spoken, uh, uh, Moses was God's vice agent on earth. He rightly mediated God's word to the people so that they could walk in those words. So as the mediator at the Red Sea, Moses plays a special role in Israel's exodus. In verse 16, God tells Moses to stretch his staff and hand over the Red Sea so that the waters of the sea might split in two. and The people of God can walk on the other side. And then when they arrive on the ground opposite of where they started, he tells them to do the same thing, to lift up his staff, at which time the waters will come crashing down upon the Egyptian forces. It's at this instance that God is empowering Moses as his mediator to bring the God-given salvation to his people. It was never Moses himself who saved the people, but it was God working through Moses. And then later on in the Exodus, as we read through this narrative, Israel comes to Mount Sinai. Moses then, as the mediator, goes up on this mountain to meet with God, to, to dwell with God, and to hear his law. And when, they go, when he comes back down, he relays that law. We call this the Mosaic Covenant. From this point on, the people of God are to live out this covenant. There's a similar pattern we see in Jesus. Jesus comes as our mediator who graciously provides salvation to us. And because of the salvation provided for us through our mediator, we now have a new covenant. The New Testament picks up on this idea of the mediator with Jesus who comes to serve as the ultimate mediator before God in our place. In 1 Timothy 2.5 it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man the man, Christ Jesus. So whereas Moses served as this imperfect mediator who would ultimately not secure mankind's salvation, Jesus has come as a greater mediator, the one who perfectly intervenes on our behalf before the Father. Whereas Moses led the people through the chaotic waters of the Red Sea, away from the bondage of the Egyptians, Jesus has come as an even greater mediator and has led us through the sea of death to new life. The Dutch uh, theologian Gerhardus Voss, I practice that a lot, describes Christ as mediator in this way. He says, only when the believer understands how he has to receive and has received everything from the mediator and how God in no way deals with him except through Christ. Only then does a picture of the glorious work that God wrought through Christ emerge in his consciousness, and the magnificent idea of grace begin to dominate and form in his life. Jesus has led us through the chaotic waters of death into new life, and has freed us from the bondage of foreign oppression. 
sin. He has come as the greater mediator who leads us to new life. The old hymn says it best. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who lives and pleads for me. So Fourth of July is more than simply a time to shoot off fireworks and enjoy a backyard barbecue as many of us did. We celebrate this date each year to remember the day that our country gained its freedom and its independence from under the foreign oppression of the British. An event that affords us certain freedoms that we all enjoy. But no matter where we find ourselves, whether in a country like America that is free, or like the Israelites find ourselves in, uh, under the heavy hand of an oppressive government, there is one thing that we all need to acknowledge. There is a bondage that goes beyond mere borderlines and political parties. A bondage that so shackles each one of us and ultimately leads to death. Sin has held us down for far too long. No matter who you are, Jesus has come to lead us through an even greater exodus. He has come as our mediator to lead us out of bondage through grace and into the freedom of knowing and being with God. He's come to provide a way out. So after the people of Israel march through the sea, ultimately they come to the promised land. The exodus at this point becomes a central act of salvation by which all generations after come to view how God provides salvation for his people. You see it time and time again in the Bible. This illustration of, of the exodus as a means of God's salvation plays out. Yet I will go even further and suggest this, that even after the exodus, the people of the Old Testament were still awaiting a better and greater exodus. While Moses was able to lead the people away from their physical bondage, their people were still enslaved to their sin. The most demeaning and life-wrecking master in a person's life had yet to been dealt with. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes as an even greater mediator than Moses, one who is able to lead his people away from their bondage to sin through grace and into the inheritance by which they're called. The author D.A. Carson puts it this way. The exodus becomes ultimately a spectacular way of anticipating and pointing to the greatest redemption from slavery imaginable as God's people are prepared by Christ's exodus to enter into the promised land of the new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. So this Independence Day weekend, let us not forget the men and women who paved the way for us to enjoy these rites many who paved it with their lives. But more than anything, let us take time to remember the even greater freedom that has been given to us through the greater exodus. So for those of you who have yet to submit to Christ, this is what you need to do. Run to him, for he is waiting for you with his loving arms wide open. There is no sin too deep. There is no distance too far that God cannot forgive. He has provided you a way out through his son, Jesus. And it's our turn to respond in faith. And for those of you who have already found this way out and this freedom afforded to us through Christ, your job now is then to show that way out to others. As we depart today, let us remember this. For it is Christ who has set us free. It is Christ who has saved us by his grace. And it is Christ who is speaking on our behalf. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we come to you this morning with 
grateful hearts for the freedoms that we enjoy as a country and thankful hearts for the freedom that we enjoy as a people, your people. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his mediating work on our behalf, the death that he died for us, raising from the dead so that we could be raised with you one, one day. And I pray that as we go from here that we would be a people that shares your gospel message. I pray that we would not back down, we would not shy away from the greatest news that has ever been told. There has been a way out, and it is only through your son, Jesus. I pray that you would give us as a church opportunities to share this gospel message in our everyday lives, that we would be a people willing and able to see those opportunities and to uh, approach them with your grace. Fill us with your presence, dear God. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together in closing.
Our benediction today comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Go therefore and live in the freedom of Christ. You are dismissed. No